So, this week we are looking at a topic called the gospel. And I believe that if I had to send out a little survey, I think we would get a wide range of differing beliefs about what the gospel is. Uh, some will say it's a music genre, gospel choirs and of the sorts, and others will say it's the name of the first few books of the Bible. And then others might say it's a set of beliefs we need to get right in order to go to heaven. Uh, in simple terms, the gospel means good news, good tidings. Uh, but the problem with the word is that it doesn't have a simple, clear-cut answer. It can't be reduced to a formula. Um, and um, there is, simply isn't a simple answer for what the good news is. Because... Its significance is very much rooted in the experience of ancient Israel. Uh, and the modern church doesn't really care much about history, <laughs> or that history particularly. Um, and we, I can't blame you. It's 2000, more than 2,000 years ago. Therefore, as time goes on, the meaning and significance of the word has changed. has taken on different meanings, different nuances. And, um, and yet the gospel remains foundational to any Christian spirituality. And it is for this reason that I'm preaching on this topic today in our series called Foundations. We're in our second week of it. Um, because, um, sorry, because in the series we're, we're stepping back and we're looking a little bit about, about the foundations of our Christian faith. The foundational beliefs of what Christian spirituality is. And so in order to understand what the gospel is, I'm going to do three things this morning as part of that series. Firstly, I will try and situate the word gospel in the historical context. So I'm going to try and go into history without making it super boring. That's what I'm trying to say. Then after that, I'm going to show us how Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that hope that was in Israel. And then finally... I'm going to look at what the gospel means for you and for me today. So, part one, the gospel born out of Israel situation. One of the biggest reasons for our lack of understanding of what the gospel is, is that it stems from the fact that we have dislodged it from its historical context. And so, in order to appreciate what the gospel is, we need to go back a little bit and see what, where it comes from to try and understand its connection with the Old Testament and the experience of the Israelites. So, in order not to make this super boring, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to put on your imagination caps and sit back and relax and imagine for a moment with me a world with no phones, a world with no social media, a world with no traveling for pleasure, Lisa, <laughs> uh, um, a world where there's no na national borders, we're not protected by international laws, uh, a world where powerful nations could just isolate sections of land and destroy cultures and occupy that land as long as they are more powerful without any consequences to the international laws. Now this, if you look at this map, this is the world of Israel. See the big red circles around Assyria, Babylon, Babylonia, and Egypt? Those were the superpowers of the ancient Near East. They were like Russia... China and America surrounding this little country called Israel. And they all wanted that piece of land. 
because it was a strategic land because of its geographic location. It was a, a major trade route. Um, there's an African proverb that says, when the elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. And Israel was very much the grass between these nations. Um, the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom was exiled by the Babylonians. But what does exile mean? Like we say, they were, we hear about exile, and the, Israel was exiled and stuff. But what does it look like? What does exile look like? It's one thing to say Israel was exiled, but it's another to take in and try to breathe that air to experience that experience. So look at these couple of images on the screen. These were all taken last year. Imagine for a moment your home country, a land lush and vibrant. I'm thinking of South Africa. I'm thinking about these forests around, of these woods around us and these beautiful midlands. You have woven your stories, your history, your culture, your spirituality into the very soil of this country. This country is home. It's a sanctuary for memories. It, it's a sanctuary for your traditions, your hopes, and your dreams, your family's dreams, your lineage. But suddenly that's all ripped from underneath you. No balance, no st stability. Everything is up in the air. There's violence. Your security is ripped away from you violently all leaving you a refugee with no place to call home. Now picture this once thriving land, now a smoldering ruin. Walls that once stood proudly shattered. Mothers clinging to their children, to the bodies of children. Elders weeping for their lost heritage. And the young carrying the weight of shattered hopes and dreams. The journey begins with people as exiles refugees leaving behind what is no longer, people looking for a place to live. Assyria and Babylonia did this to Israel. They were intent on destroying her national, cultural, and religious identity in order to take claim of that land. They destroyed Israel's temple, forced them to, into servitude in foreign nations, thus stripping them from any unifying force of, of identity and belonging. It was a relentless attack on the very essence of their identity and their belonging. Now my point in rehashing this history from Israel's experience in the Old Testament um, in such graphic detail is to help you feel the drama of what they went through. It's to, to get into their shoes a little bit, as much as we can. Um, and it's out, because it's out of that, that experience that that pain, that destitution, that the hope of a gospel, a good news was born. And so it's important for us to, to realize that experience before we try to give re uh, answers of what the gospel is. So no, it's not music. <laughs> it's, uh, to some people it is, but yeah. And so the understanding of the word gospel has to be directly linked to this historical experience and, ex and the expectations that was born out of that experience. Um, it can't just be an afterlife insurance. It can't just be me and my relationship with God, which it is. It's part of the, process, part of the po package, but it's not the complete story. It has to speak into the dire experiences of our humanity, of Israel's experience and our humanity. And this brings me to the word gospel. So the word derives its meaning from the Hebrew word biser or besorah, uh, and the Greek word euangelion, which basically means good news or good tidings. 
But this is a certain kind of good news. You see, Beser and Besorah in the Old Testament in Hebrew was commonly used to signify good royal message announcements, like a victory in battle, meaning that your country is still stable, you still have stable lives, you are not going to be overthrown by an empire and it's going to send you into exile. That was the, what the word was initially, a good announcement. Of a, and also a, vic, a victory in battle, but also the succession of a king, meaning that the kingdom still belongs to us. We're still in safe hands. There's still stability and peace and goodness flourishing. And so in the context of exile, the gospel became the good news that Israel all held on to in their exile. A hope for a good announcement again. We have no king. We have no temple. So we can't worship our God. We have no um, land that we can... Well, there's no cultural thing that pulls us together. And so in the context of exile, the gospel became the good news that Israel held on to. A hope that their oppressors would... That they'd be free from their oppressors that, they'd be, that held them captive. But Israel's experience through the exile left them with a contamin contaminated hope with a hope that's good news for them but for no one else. The good news they held on to was, uh, in a way, true, a true demonstration of our, human, our universal human captivity uh, that both they and their captors were captive to. You see, after the exile, the Israel's, Israelites' lived in a, um, their lived experience became marked by a complex mixture of sorrow Lament, indignation, anger, hate, and a deep-seated sense for vengeance and revenge. It's like Martin Luther King says, that says, Wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. And so all of this injustice that Israel experienced produced in them, this uni uh, them a, uni a universal human captivity that we also suffer from. That is a, des a deep desire for rever reversing the seat of power. A des deep desire for retribution and revenge. And so in the Old Testament, you often see the hope and the anticipation for a coming Messiah or King who's going to destroy their enemies. Who's concerned for justice and peace for Israel, but not for their enemies. Vengeance for against the Gentiles is what they hoped for. Blood. And this is understandable. I mean, imagine, if you saw those pictures earlier, imagine that happened to you and your people. Imagine that happened, you would want to see retribution. I would. Uh, that's my human heart speaking. But, and this was Israel's hope. Their gospel that they clung on to in exile was that their king will one day wipe away their tears and destroy their enemies. And this brings me to my second point of my sermon. How Jesus fulfills this historical anticipation. How does he enter into this situation of, you know, this complex human heart? In other words, how Jesus, I want to look at how Jesus' arrival is the gospel, the good news that liberates us from our captivity. But let me start with this section from the Gospel of Luke. In, in Luke 4, verse 14 to 20, we read Jesus saying these uh, famous words. He says, and I'm reading from the NIV, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. 
He was, reaching in their, uh, he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Naz- Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, by quoting from Isaiah like this, Jesus was telling them two things. One, that He is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. He is the King that has come. He is the good news. But two, that He wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were anticipating. You see, Jesus doesn't quote Isaiah in full here. He stops in the middle of a sentence. And... um, and leaves out a critical clause. Isaiah 61 verse 2 reads like this, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Which section do you think he left out? (laughs) Jesus leaves out the vengeance clause, and he stresses the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Before I continue, this doesn't mean Jesus is saying we're going to drive Ferraris or live in mansions. (laughs) Um, That is not what he's saying here, as some pastors have the habit of saying. But what Jesus is saying is that he has come to inaugurate his kingdom here on this earth when he came. A kingdom that is wholly different from one, the empires that have been oppressing Israel. But two, a kingdom that is not going to do overthrow those empires by their rules. He's not going to play by our world's politics. He's not going to play by our rules. And therefore, not, a, not according to Israel's expectations of a violent, retributive king who's going to overthrow the Gentiles. And this is the good news. Because if the Israelites were right, then none of this would be good news for us. Because I don't see many Jewish people sitting here today. <laughs> we won't be sitting here. It wouldn't be good news to us. You see, Jesus actually showed the Israelites that even though they were oppressed, even though they were in physical captivity by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and in the time of Jesus by the Romans, that they too were in a kind of captivity. A captivity that let them down dark dreams of vengeance, violence, hate, and anger. The kind of spiritual captivity that contaminated our that contaminates our physical lived reality. It's a captivity that leads to wars. We see it in Russia. We see it in the Middle East. We see it in our own country. Our hearts are captive to anger, to us versus them mentalities. But Jesus showed the Israelites that there is no us versus them, that their fear about preserving national identity and purity as a result of their horrid experiences in exile had actually led them into a captivity of their own. A captivity that their oppressors were also held captive to. Jesus showed them how their, 
how they emulated their oppressors. When, when in, the, in their religious customs, the temples were only a temple and the holy places were only available to the Jewish people. Um, when people had skin illnesses or when women had their periods, they weren't allowed into the temple. They weren't allowed to worship God. They weren't allowed to be in the presence of God. But Jesus showed them that their sense of purity, their sense of us versus them are keeping so many people away from God's love. Jesus therefore demonstrated that the good news is that God is accessible to everyone, not just a select few. That we don't have to jump through these man-made rules that no matter who you are, what you have experienced, or what you've done in your life, God is waiting there. He's there for you. He's loving you. He loves you. He's waiting there, arms wide open. And this is ultimately why Jesus was killed. It was two enemies, the Jewish Herod, the ruler over the Jews, instituted by the Roman Empire, and Pontius Pilate on the Roman Empire side, um, the governor of Judea, who united in the murder of Jesus on Good Friday, who united in the murder of God. This relationship with Herod and Pilate was fraught with conflict. You can imagine, Herod is... is um, instituted by the Roman Empire to rule over the Jews as a Jewish leader. So they're still under the servitude of the Roman Empire in this relationship, and they hated it. The Jews detested the Romans for it. But there is nothing that unites people more than a common enemy. And in this case, the Gospel of Luke recounts how Herod and Pilate became friends in their pursuit of executing Jesus. The Jews could not accept this man who claims to be God, who extends grace to sinners, who breaks the religious rules to include people. And Rome could not allow this insubordination from a person who might cause an up uprising. Um, the pastor Brian Zahn speaks of this relation between Herod and Pilate, and he talks about it in a global sense. He says, this kind of satanic unity is the glue of civilization. Harmony achieved through envy and accusation, scapegoating and ritual violence. But when the, when the satanic system of civilization sacrificed the Holy Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, it reached a breaking point. Because on Good Friday we see that our violent systems of blame and accusation, of ritual killing, is so evil that it is capable of the murder of God. And once we see it, we can repent of it. We be forgiven for it and be freed from it. This is how the cross saves the world. This is how we are freed. And this brings me to my final point for my sermon. How the gospel is good news for us. What, what does this mean for us? The gospel of God's kingdom invites us to pledge allegiance to a different king. The King Jesus, the Prince of Peace and His Kingdom. It offers us a peaceful way outside of all this messing around politics of our world. It offers us a peaceful way, a way from the cutthroat politics of this world, from the politics that's um, bound to accusation, anger and hate. This is the gospel call, the gospel of peace. 
You see, the good news of God's kingdom demolishes any man-made social hierarchy where we impute value and dignity on some at the cost of others. Where we ascribe value and worth on, on, on wealth and, 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 um, and look down upon those without it. You see, God, uh, I mean, go and read the, the stories of people like Bayez Nodia, who was a pastor in the Dutch Reformed Church during apartheid. He, he was part of the Bruderbond. Um, his family was deeply rooted in the Bruderbond. He had so much going for him in terms of what he could achieve in, t- in his realm of influence. But yet he stood up against the, what he saw as evil. And he was branded a heretic by the Dutch Reformed Church um, 60 years ago. They would balk at such accusations. He was branded a heretic. Um, he was exiled from his, his, his people. Go look at the person like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime during, um, during that time and was eventually executed by it. He was exiled, executed. This is what happens when we are prophets. Prophets aren't people who predict the future. Prophets are people who stand for justice. And this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. While most of the German churches colluded or avoided the evils of Nazi Germany, he was a kingdom citizen. He was a citizen of God's kingdom. He knew who King Jesus was. And this is exactly where King Jesus calls us into, into the story of redemption, of reconciliation, to proclaim the good news of the good king, of the good kingdom, of peace. Consider the profound symbolism mirrored in Jesus' posture on the cross. Arms stretched wide, extending forgiveness even to those who are murdering him. This embodiment of love is the essence of the good news. It is the very heart of the gospel. Now picture Jesus on the cross, arms outstretched, drawing us into an embrace. Not through coercion or manipulation, but through dying for us at our hands. And in that embrace, we find a space to look one another in the eyes as he brings us to each other. We find a unity that unravels our shared hopes, our fears, and our dreams. A unity that exposes how the barriers we construct and the masks we wear for self-protection inflicts harm upon one another. It shows us how the divides we create causes us to teach others... Sorry, it, it shows us how the divides we create causes us to do to each other what we once did to Jesus. Within the shared embrace, we realize that our actions toward each other ripple back to impact our connection with God. That what we do to one another, we do to God. And so as we, as we distance ourselves from one another, we distance ourselves from God. And as we, we come together and see our shared humanity in each other, we actually come closer to God again. It shows us how the divides we create causes us to do to each other what we once did to Jesus. 
I've lived and worked in three different countries. My wife is from an additional country. I've gone to multiple different schools and colleges in those countries. And wherever I've been, I've seen the story of humanity, <laughs> the story of accusation, the story of aggression. And I saw it unfold in different ways and in different settings because this is our story. This is our heart yearns for like aggression, like for outrage. Look at our social media feeds. Look at our news. Look at the newspapers. Yearn for violence. We create enemies, we draw the lines, and we recruit and build our armies, and finally we attack. This is the Game of Thrones. The game of power. The game, the politics of this world. When we do this, we no longer care about who, what we stand for. We only care about who we are against and who will join our ranks. Like Herod and Pilate, murdering God. But on Good Friday, we see that the human impulse of ours, if given enough power, like with Herod and Pilate, if we are given enough power, we have the ability to murder God. And in this way, and in a way, this is what we do every time we choose to play the power of um, this world, if we play by these rules. Because are we not created in the image of God, each one of us? When I attack you, I attack God. And it was exactly that which got Jesus killed. It was his resistance to play this game. Jesus refused to create us versus them dichotomies or binaries. He refused to play the insider-outsider game. And this is the gospel, the good news, that you and I are accepted by God. He invites us. That there is no us versus them. There is only us. And we only achieve the beauty of God's kingdom when we live that way. God's love is not limited to a select few, to a national identity. God's love is available to anyone who seeks it. At the same time, God won't force that upon you. Because, there is, because that is not love. That's coercion. But he will always stand there, arms wide open, like the father, the father of the prodigal son, and like Jesus on the cross, ready to accept you. No matter what you've done, what you've experienced, he's there ready to forgive, ready to set you free, ready to restore you. He waits patiently to set us free from our bondage to anger, resentment, violence, and hate. Unlike popular belief, God is not like a judge. He's like a physician like a doctor he's ready to restore us to health we need to realize however that we need restoration this is the call of the gospel are we going to allow God's kingdom to infiltrate our hearts to become kingdom citizens are we going to pledge our allegiance to this king worthy of following Christ our king the prince of peace he's a king worthy to submit under I would not be a Christian if it wasn't for Jesus. I would not believe in God if it wasn't for Jesus. We all submit to powers outside of ourselves. But what's it going to be? Who are we going to submit to? Who are you going to submit to? Are we going to submit under the powers of accusation, under the powers of vengeance, under the powers of retribution and retaliation? 
Or are we going to be yielded by the power of love? Of God's love? The power of forgiveness? The power of peace? The power of reconciliation? Imagine what kind of world we would live in if the church was the church. <laughs> what world we would create if we, this small little population in the world, was just the church. A city on a hill. A place where people can say, there, on that hill, there's light. There's good news. There's a good king worthy of following. Yet we're still following pastors. Or we, we latch on to this pastor or that pastor or... No, we're following King Jesus. Only He can heal us. Only He is worth following. I will always disappoint you. Uh, any minister that you're going to subscribe to, once you get to know them, they'll disappoint you somehow. <laughs> Imagine what kind of world we would create if we were just the church. So in conclusion, you see the gospel is the good news that Jesus has come to show us. That we're all invited to share in God's love. That every person is created with immense dignity. No matter what politics or religion has to say. God loves you. The gospel is the good news that there is finally a good king worth serving. And that his kingdom has been established regardless of who is reigning politically in that nation. And he invites you to serve him. He's not a king who demands servitude. But he's a kind of king who demonstrated service first. You know, if you want to follow someone, follow someone who, who, who shows you that they're willing to serve you. Don't follow someone who demands servitude. If you feel that there's a question rising in you about who am I following? Am I following Jesus? Is he my king? Is he, am I a kingdom citizen? Remember that God is standing there, arms wide open, ready to accept you, no matter what you've done or what you've experienced in life. You are worthy, you are valuable, and you are accepted by God. Just run to Him. Run to Him and allow Him to transform you into a, into a reconciler, into the person of Jesus, into the image of God in which you were created as, that it might shine through you. And that wherever you go, that you might sow the seeds of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come here this morning and we take on this big topic about the gospel, Lord. And <laughs> Lord, we uh, are so confused sometimes about what it is. We reduce it to um, formulas or we reduce it to uh, music genres, Lord. But Lord, the good news is that the King has come, the King that liberates humanity from its, clutch, from its impulses to, to brokenness, Lord. Its impulses to lust, greed, power, and, uh, and it corrupts us, Lord. You did not create us. We were not created evil. We were created good. We were corrupted, Lord. Our hearts are imp has an impulse towards darkness. But Lord, you set us free. You show us the way of peace, of goodness of kindness, gentleness. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this week and show us how we can follow you, how we can follow you in, in our homes, how we can follow you in our uh, families, in our communities, in our churches, and in our, in our country, Lord, and in our world. And I pray that the church will be the church and show 
itself to be the light of the world, Lord. We'll point to the light of the world, which is you, the King worth following. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.